Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am honored and thrilled to introduce you tonight to the renowned physician, Dr. Gabor Mate, one of the world's leading experts in trauma, child development, addiction, and the relationship between stress and disease. Please give him a huge welcome. Thank you. Thank you very kindly for this welcome. Uh, my thanks to John Gordon and the How to Academy and all of you for coming out tonight. Uh, we're going to plunge right in. I'd like to speak to you about 50 minutes to an hour and then take some questions. So the title of this talk is why we get sick, and really what we're looking at is um, two questions, basically. One is, um, what is disease, number one? And number two, how do we understand a human being's relationship to illness? Which really comes to the heart of what is humanity, really. Now, in the Western medicine, in which I was trained, disease is seen as a pathological process that involves a disorder of cells, molecules, organs, and different body systems. And so we have specialists to deal with every system, every organ uh, in the body. The disease is first second, seen secondly as a fixed entity uh, that just exists on its own. So we talk about, I have cancer. And the assumption is that there's such a thing as cancer, then there's an I that has the cancer. But there's no unity between myself and the cancer. Or I have multiple sclerosis. And multiple sclerosis has certain qualities and certain trajectories and certain prognoses associated with it. And that's the nature of the disease. And that's separate from who I am. Because I have multiple sclerosis, but it's something other than me. So disease is an entity. And thirdly, Western medicine, in which I was trained, sees illness or the ill person as somehow a random victim of either genetics or external invaders such as bacteria or virus or toxins or possibly as even a culpable um, instigator uh, of their own pathology by, by certain so-called lifestyle choices like eating too much, drinking too much, or smoking. So this is how illness is seen. Uh, in 2017, a fellow Canadian physician, Dr. Norman Doidge, also an, an author, writes about brain and neuroplasticity, said that modern scientific medicine has taken a fundamentally materialist approach and it is analytical, meaning that it divides wholes into parts. It often proceeds by reducing complex phenomena to their more elementary chemical and physical components, viruses, genes, molecules. And that's how it is. And this isn't a new perception about Western medicine. In 1977, Dr. George Engel, an American physician, internist, and psychiatrist said, 
that the dominant model of medicine today is biomedical with molecular biology, its basic scientific discipline. And what I'm trying to say to you here is that the critique that I'm going to make tonight of Western medicine and, 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 and in providing an alternative, it's not new, actually. People have been saying this for a long, long time. So here's George Engel saying that the dominant model of medicine today is biomedical with molecular biology, its basic scientific discipline. It assumes disease to be fully accounted for by deviations from the norm of measurable biological variables. It leaves little room in its framework for social, psychological, and behavioral dimensions of illness. The biomedical model embraces mind-body dualism, the doctrine that separates the mental from the somatic. And let me just give you three medical facts here, and, 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 and you'll see immediately how inadequate and insufficient um, the Western medical perspective is in explaining these facts that I'm about to give you. The first fact is a study that was done in the United States last year, or I should say two years ago now, that showed that the more episodes of racism an American black woman experiences, the greater her risk for asthma. Now, you can't explain that on molecular grounds. You just can't. Let me give another fact. In the 1930s and 40s, the gender ratio of multiple sclerosis, which is a inflammatory degenerative disease of the nervous system was a one-to-one. -one. In other words, for every man, there was a woman diagnosed. You know what the ratio now is? It's three and a half women to every man. Now that immediately tells us, A, it can't be genetic because the genes don't change in a population over seven decades or even ten decades or longer. Number two, it can't be uh, diet, because that doesn't change for a population. It didn't change more for women than for men. Nor can it be the climate. There's something going on. And whatever it is, it can't just be biological. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at how you treat asthma, is you give, uh, to open up the airways and to suppress the inflammation that happens in the asthmatic airway, you give... Uh, inhalers or, 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 or medications by mouth which are copies of adrenaline and cortisol. Adrenaline and cortisol are the stress hormones of the body. I'll talk about them later. They're secreted by the adrenal gland in response to a threat. So there's adrenaline and cortisol. So we're treating asthma with stress hormones. How do we treat multiple sclerosis? If you have a flare-up of your multiple sclerosis, you're going to get an infusion of the st stress hormone cortisol. If you've ever been to a dermatologist with a skin flare-up, some kind of chronic psoriasis or eczema, most of the time you're going to get a steroid cream, a copy of cortisol. If you go to a rheumatologist with inflamed joints or connective tissues, guess what they're going to give you? Steroids, cortisol, in all autoimmune diseases. Um, I could go on. So here's the, the, the interesting question. We're treating all these conditions across medicine with stress hormones, but we're not asking ourselves a simple question. 
is it possible that stress may have something to do with this, the onset of this condition? Has something happened to the body's stress apparatus that we have to give people now larger quantities of stress hormone to keep them from having symptoms? And of course, as in the case of the, uh, the racism-induced uh, asthmatic attack, we can see that, obviously, emotional factors must be playing a role here. And not just emotional factors, because the, the, the black woman who experiences racism isn't an isolated particle responding to nothing in the environment. She's affected by a social circumstance, a social economic, political circumstance. And so George Engel, in 1977, called for what he termed a biopsychosocial approach for medicine. And uh, he said, the boundaries between health and disease, between well and sick, are far from clear and will never be clear because they're affected by cultural, social, and psychological considerations. That was 1977. And that wasn't new either. In 1940, another American physician said that social and psychic features play a role in every disease, but in many conditions they represent dominant influences, and that mental factors represent an active force in the treatment of patients as as, as active a force in the treatment of patients as chemical and physical agents. And that wasn't new either, because back in Roman times, the Greek physician Galen already pointed out that women who, have, um, who are depressed are more likely to have breast cancer. And now we have the actual studies to show why, and I'll refer to them later. So what I'm saying is that this awareness, this, 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 intuitive awareness that, that you can't separate the mind from the body and you can't separate the individual from the environment is not new in medicine. What is new is that now we have the science to actually prove it. And what is remarkable and lamentable at the same time is that despite the scientific evidence, medical practice still doesn't take into account. And let me show you to what degree it doesn't. So I'm going to ask you a question. Raise your hand. If in the last, say, five years or so, you've been to a respirologist, uh, 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 a, auto, uh, a gastroenterologist, um, a cardiologist, a neurologist, or a dermatologist, any kind of anologist, just put your hand up, okay? Great. Now, thank you. Now, put your hand up again if they ask you about any stress in your childhood. One person, that's fantastic, one out of 1,500. Put your hand up if they asked you about any trauma you experienced. Same person. You, you went to a good doctor. <laughs> if they asked you about your relationship with your partner or spouse. <laughs> if they asked you about how you feel about yourself as a human being. Same person. And if they asked you about any stresses at work. And I'm telling you, that's how bad it is. Because every one of you, I would say, well, I don't mean too dogmatic, maybe only 98% of you who went to see one of those specialists went there because of those factors that they never asked you about. 
And that's what I'm going to talk to you about now. So I was uh, 20 years in family practice before I did addiction medicine. And for seven years, I, um, I did palliative care work, looking after terminally ill people. And so in my experience, I began to notice that there were certain patterns as to who got ill and who didn't get ill. And these patterns just kept reasserting themselves over and over and over again until they became inescapable in, in my awareness. And what these patterns were, I'll illustrate for you by means of some newspaper clippings from the Canadian newspaper, the uh, Globe and Mail, for which I wrote a medical column for a number of years. And these stories uh, from the paper illustrate aspects of what I call the disease-prone personality. The first is a first-person story written by a woman called Donna, who's diagnosed with breast cancer, and she goes to her doctor, and she she's describing the experience of the diagnosis. What you need to know is that her doctor's name is Harold, and her husband's name is High. Now, High's first wife died of breast cancer, and now Donna, the second wife, is diagnosed with the same condition. And Donna writes, Harold tells me that the lump is small, and most assuredly not in my lymph nodes, unlike that of Heist's first wife, whose cancer had spread everywhere by the time they found it. You're not going to die, he reassures me. But I'm worried about High, I say. I won't have the strength to support him. Now, anything... What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> so here she is diagnosed with a potentially serious condition. And her first, and she's the one who might need radiation, surgery, and or chemotherapy. And the first thought that she has is, how will I look after my husband's emotional needs? So this automatic and um, compulsive concern for the emotional needs of others while ignoring your own is a major risk factor for disease for reasons that I'm going to tell you. The other segments I'll cite for you now are obituaries. And obituaries are fascinating because they tell us not just about the person who died, but also about what we as a society value in one another. And what we value in one another is often what kills people. You've heard the expression, the good die young? They often do. And there's a reason for it. So um, many of you are relieved uh, having heard that. <laughs> this is a physician who died at age 55 in Toronto. Never for a day did he contemplate giving up the work he so loved at Toronto's Sick Children's Hospital. He carried on with his duties throughout his year-long battle with cancer, stopping only a few days before he died. Now, again, if a friend of yours is diagnosed with a malignancy, is that what you would say to them? Go back to work and keep working until you drop? So this, this rigid and compulsive identification with duty, role, and responsibility rather than the needs of the self is another risk factor for illness. For reasons I'll explain. The third um, obituary, the second obituary I'll read you is about a woman called Naomi. This is written by her grateful husband. And she died of breast cancer at age 55. And the husband writes, In her entire life, she never got into a fight with anyone. The worst she could say was fooey or something else along those lines. 
She had no ego. She just blended in with the environment in an unassuming manner. Now, um, my wife Ray, I think, is in the audience, and uh, we were married 50 years this year. And believe me, there have been many times when I wish that she would blend in with the environment uh, in a in a in an unassuming manner, as I'm sure many of you have who have partners or spouses of any type. But if your partner wants to stay healthy, they will not blend in with the environment. And really what's being described here is the repression of healthy anger. And the repression of healthy anger, we know, suppresses the immune system. And it's literally the commonest characteristic that I've seen in people with malignancy and autoimmune disease. When I say repression, I mean that they don't even allow, some, allow themselves to experience the anger. And the final obituary I'll read you is, uh, you'll have to really take my word for it that I copied this out verbatim from the newspaper. Uh, this is a man called Sidney. He was a physician, died age 72 of cancer. Sidney and his mother had an incredibly special relationship, a bond that was apparent in all aspects of their lives until her death. As a married man with young children, Sidney made a point to have dinner with his parents every day as his wife, Rosalind, and their four kids waited for him at home. He would walk in, greeted by yet another dinner to eat and to enjoy. Never wanting to disappoint either woman in his life, Sidney kept having two dinners a day for years <laughs> until gradual weight gain began to raise suspicions. And this is presented as a wonderful example of loyal um, loyalty to the parent. And what is actually being described here is a poor man who suffered from two fatal beliefs. And when I say fatal, I mean literally fatal. One is that he's responsible for how other people feel. And two, that he must never disappoint anybody. I'll give you one more example, which is actually a, a, a British one. It's from the TV series The Crown, which I'm sure many of you have seen. It's a wonderful soap opera about the Windsor family. And... Um, <laughs> As you know, the, the current Queen's father, uh, King George VI, um, ascended to the throne in um, 1936 when his brother Edward uh, abdicated to marry his divorced American sweetheart. He, he was, his name wasn't George, his name was Albert, Bertie. He did not want to become king. He did not. Um, when his mother, Queen Mary, told him about the coming abdication and that it would be up to him now to assume the, uh, the royal throne. He writes in his diary, I'm sorry, when I told her what had happened, I broke down and sobbed like a child, she says. He said. He didn't want to do it. Now, in the, um, in the crown, in the uh, TV series, there's a conversation between his mother, Queen Mary, and... Uh, and his wife, the now deceased Queen Mother Elizabeth, and um, the mother says, now of course he died of cancer. He was a smoker and he died of lung cancer. There was a British uh, surgeon in the 1960s called David Kesson, who noticed, just like I noticed, and as many physicians have noticed, these patterns in their clients. And he noticed that he was operating on people with lung cancer. 
And of course, the more you smoke, the greater the risk of lung cancer. Now, Berkey, or King George, who became King George VI, was a smoker. But Kissin also noticed that these people also suppressed their emotions, particularly their anger. And he did some studies, and he actually found that the more you suppressed your emotion, the less cigarette smoke it took to trigger the cancer in you. Now, going back to the crown, so here's the Queen Mother, I should say King George's, Albert's mother, talking to his wife, and, and he sa- she says, the mother says, one can only be thankful for the years one had with him. So wonderfully thoughtful and caring, an angel to his mother, wife, and children. I honestly believe he never thought of himself at all. He really was the perfect son. Want to be the perfect son in the British royal family? Don't think about yourself. Don't think about yourself. So, I think that what we need is a, is a, a broader view of medicine. And so the perspective that I'm going to uh, present to you here is along the lines of what um, George Engel called the biopsychosocial perspective, which simply says that the biology of human beings can't be separated from their social and emotional processes, dynamics, and environments. Now, let me give you an interesting example from the animal world. In an ant colony or a bee colony, there's the queen, right? And the queen's job is to produce the eggs. And she's bigger, and, and people bring her food, and she really is the center of the hive's solicitous attention. And you think there's something different about the queen? No, genetically, she's the same as all the drones. It's just that because of the demands of the hive, she develops the characteristics of the queen. And if you take the queen out of the hive, of an, of an ant colony, for example, the drone, one of the drones will develop into the queen. Biologically, they will change. In other words, the biology of the individual utterly reflects the needs of the group. And that's also the case uh, in, in human life. So, um, three years ago, I had the um, pleasure, or two years ago, we were being in Britain, uh, in London, presenting at the Breath of Life conference, and one of the, the co speakers was the great trauma psychiatrist, uh, my friend of mine, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And, and Bessel says in his book, um, The Body Keeps the Score, our culture teaches us to focus on personal uniqueness, but on a deeper level, we barely exist as individual organisms. Our brains are built to help us function as members of, our, of a tribe. And that's not new either, because if you go back 2,500 years to the Buddha, he said, he taught, the Buddha talked about what he called the interdependent core rising of phenomena. And he said that every phenomena arises in relationship to every other phenomena. You can't separate anything from anything else. And he said, contemplate the nature of interconnected core rising during every moment. When you look at a leaf or a raindrop, meditate on all the conditions, near and distant, 
that have contributed to the presence of that leaf or raindrop. The birth and death of any phenomenon, he says, are connected to the birth and death of all other phenomena. The one contains the many, and the many contains the one. Without the one, there cannot be the many. Without the many, there cannot be the one. And so the perspective I will propose here for you, propose here for you, is that biopsychosocial perspective. And from that perspective, illness is not an entity in itself. It is actually the manifestation of a person's life in a certain context, to which many uh, factors contribute, but the psychological cannot be separated from the physical, and the physical and the psychological aspects of the individual cannot be separated from his or her social uh, connections and existence, and therefore from the culture that they live in. And if we're going to be fully inclusive about human beings, uh, I'll have to bring in another dimension, which of course is heresy in medical terms, which is the spiritual one. And so basically we're biopsychosocial spiritual creatures. And spiritual simply means that there's more to us than the little ego that many of us are hung up on and which rules this particular society. The second point I'm going to make for you is that disease, disease is not a fixed entity. It's a process. And that process is not separated from that person's life. So that how the multiple sclerosis will behave is not a, simply a characteristic of the disease. It reflects what's happening in the life of that particular individual. Which is, by the way, why we're seeing three times as much in women right now, which I'll talk about later. But it's a process. And if it's a process that somehow manifests how we're living our lives, then we can actually perhaps do something about it. And I'm not here trying to give you an alternative to Western medicine, um, which has many wonderful achievements to its credit and can do miraculous, can perform miracles really, as, as we all know. But there's something missing. And what's missing is that we don't know from the Western medical perspective how to promote the healing process within the, the patient, himself or herself, or themselves. And from that perspective, illness is not just meant to be battled. It's meant to be come to terms with, understood, um, inquired into as to what its message is. And from that perspective, illness is a potential teacher. And, and that invites and actually necessitates an inquiry. Now let me give you another British medical fact. Um, Stephen Hawking, the physicist who died, what, three years ago now, two years ago, uh, in his mid-70s of ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or known in Britain as motor neuron disease, do you know he was diagnosed at age 20? You know how long he was given to live? Two years. He should have died well over 50 years ago. Something didn't figure in the equation, did it? Otherwise he would have succumbed much longer. And many people do succumb, of course. But I know, I, I know people 
like Hockey, who have long survived ALS and have done even better than he did in terms of physical functioning. So the disease does not have a life of its own. It does manifest the life and functioning and, and, and social circumstances of the individual. Let me talk to you about another uh, British person. I could talk to you about ALS um, as an interesting example, but I'll leave it for now. Let me come to a multiple sclerosis. And there was a, a person who I was very interested in because I'm a lover of classical music and, and, and uh, I'm very interested in the lives of musicians. And uh, there was the great British cellist, Jacqueline Dupre who died of multiple sclerosis in her 40s. And um, I'm going to play a piece of music, actually, a couple of minutes of the, her recording of the Elgar Cello Concerto. And um, I'm recalling now, so I may not be quoting it exactly, but... Uh, it's, it's a remarkable recording made, I think, when she was 21 or 20 years old. And uh, her sister, Hillary, who was also a musician, not as gifted as Jackie was, said that Jackie's ability to capture the emotions of a man uh, in the autumn of his life was one of her remarkable and inexplicable capacities. Well, it was remarkable, but it wasn't inexplicable. Now, Algar wrote this concerto in the aftermath of the First World War, and he was really despondent at the carnage. And he said at the time when he wrote this that everything nice and fresh and clean is far away, will never return. And Jackie looked at portraits of Algar, and it always made her sad. And, 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 and she said to her sister Hillary, he has such a beautiful soul, and that's what I sense in his music. Now, when Jacqueline Dupre played the cello for audiences, when she came to Canada in Toronto, uh, the audience cried. She was that moving in her performance. And, and when she was on stage, it's like a wall that always stood between her and other people, all of a sudden dissolved. And then she became um, vibrant and, and she... Her body moved around and her long blonde hair swayed and flew in the air and she just put so much emotion into her playing. So they call that her cello voice. But she was never able to express her emotions in real life. In fact, she tried to fit in just to be the person everybody wanted her to be. Her sister said that she was always the Jackie that circumstances demanded. Well, that's totally typical of everybody with multiple sclerosis. Um, why? And you might think at this point, well, she, she didn't actually want it any more than uh, King uh, Albert wanted to become King George. No more than that did Jackie want to become a cello virtuoso. She envied somebody who gave up the cello. She says, I can't do it because people would be so disappointed in me. She said, she actually was afraid that it would kill her. And it did. When she was seven or eight years old, I forget exactly, I read Hillary's account of this. She said that to her sister, Hill, don't tell our mommy this, but when I will grow up, I won't be able to move or walk. 
That's exactly what happened by the time she was in her uh, 30s. And it's very interesting here because um, sometimes people have this intuitive feeling. Jonathan Swift, the great satirist and writer, author of Gulliver's Travels, who died with severe Alzheimer's dementia, said to a doctor friend of his as they were walking outside one day looking at this tree losing its leaves and, and, and so it said I shall be like that tree I shall die first at the top there's something in us that knows Jacqueline Dupre went to Russia to study the cello the land of music she was raped there she comes back to England and says to Hillary Hillary don't tell our mommy this but I was raped in Russia now notice both times, don't tell her mummy this. She doesn't want to hurt the mummy's feelings or upset the mummy. And you might think at this point, I'm blaming her for the disease. I'm not blaming anybody for the disease because these patterns that I'm describing are not conscious on anybody's part. Nobody chooses them deliberately. But there's a sense, but there's responsibility here. By responsibility, I don't mean in any sense guilt or blame. I mean in the sense that if you actually look at who gets sick and why, yes, there's certain patterns and dynamics, certain beliefs that they hold about themselves and their relationship to the world that actually, um, I'm not going to say causes the illness, but, but, but contributes significantly to the onset of the illness. And furthermore, there's another meaning to the word responsibility, responsible, which is response-able. We want people to be response-able. And I can tell you, I know people with multiple sclerosis who once they become response-able, once they look at the flare-ups and what stresses led to the flare-ups and how they unwittingly contributed to those stresses and learn how to prevent the next flare-up, their disease actually is significantly mitigated. And that's what I mean by responsibility. I mean response-ability. So they had um, what Jackie called the uh, cello voice, or, or was called her cello voice. Now in this particular recording, um, you'll hear that voice, um, but but Interestingly enough, there's another recording of the same concerto by, by Dupre some years later, which her sister heard after her sister's death. And it was the last recording made by uh, Jacqueline Dupre in Britain before she could no longer play the cello. And, and as Hillary was listening to this recording, she, she said, suddenly, I stopped, she said, Jackie was slowing the tempo down. I knew what she was doing. She was speaking in her cello voice. She was playing her own requiem. Now the recording I'll play you now is um, the one that was made by the uh, 21 or 20 year old, um, excuse me a second here, Jacqueline Dupre.
I wish I could play a few more minutes of that, but we're just going to run out of time if I do. The question is, why do people do that? Why do they suppress themselves? Why do they try to please others? Why do they try, why does she try to be the Jackie that circumstances um, demanded? This is where there's no blame whatsoever because Jacqueline Dupre was born um, to a mother who was, while she was still in the hospital with her baby, lost her father, to whom she was very close. Jacqueline's mother's father died. The, the role that Jackie was thrust into as an infant was that of the mother's emotional support. She had no emotional existence of her own. And these early relationships uh, that we experience, they become our templates for our personalities, and they become the templates for how we interact with the world. And the, 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 the key point here is that there are two basic needs that human beings have. One is for attachment. Now, attachment is absolutely essential for human uh, survival. Attachment is actually a biological drive. It's an instinct to be close to another person. Why do we have that drive? Because without it, we can't survive. The human infant is the most helpless, most dependent, least um, uh, capable creature in the universe. And so without an attachment drive that calls that infant to come close to the mother to be taken care of or to the father, to the parenting figures, and without an, uh, an equivalent attachment drive on the part of the parenting figure to be close to the baby, there's no survival of the infant. Reptiles can get away with it, birds can't, mammals can't, and least of all can human beings. So the attachment drive is like a gravitational force that pulls two bodies together for the purpose of being taken care of or to take care of the other. So that attachment drive is not negotiable. We can't survive without it, nor could we have survived as individuals as we evolved from our pre-hominid ancestors and over millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years, People had to attach to each other in small groups in order to survive. So that's just the basic need. But we have another need that's also important in the long term. And that need is for authenticity. And authenticity means knowing what you feel and your guts and being able to act on it. Now, as we evolve, now let me ask you a question. I'll ask again for a show of hands. Just please raise your hand if you've had the experience of having a strong gut feeling about something, ignoring it, and being sorry afterwards. Just raise your hand. <laughs> well, again, you know, that's how important it is. That's how important it is. And when you think of human evolution, or think of any animal out there in the wild today, just how long is an organism, a creature, survive out there in the wild if they're not in touch with their gut feelings. So we have these two important needs, attachment and authenticity, auto the self, being in touch with ourselves. Now, that's fine. But what if you're two years old and your mother doesn't give you another cookie before dinner, so you do what a two-year-old does when they don't get another cookie? You throw a tantrum. And then you get the message, good little kids, don't get angry. 
you might even be punished. Jordan Peterson, the Canadian so-called psychologist, <laughs> says that uh, says that an angry child should be made to sit by themselves. So the message that the angry child gets is not that good little kids don't get angry, but that angry little kids don't get loved. No, what I said, what I told you was that the attachment drive is not negotiable. If I get the message that my healthy anger, which is just expressing how I'm feeling, is unacceptable and threatens my attachment relationship because I'm going to lose the parent if I do it, what do you suppose I'll do? What do you think is going to get sacrificed? The attachment? Impossible. In every case, the authenticity is going to be sacrificed and now we become separated from ourselves. And so when you raised your hand in answer to this last question about gut feelings, what you're really telling me is that sometime in your childhood you learned that it was safer for you to ignore your gut feelings than to pay attention to them. And I'm not saying that your parents meant to teach that to you. I don't doubt for a moment that they did their best. But that was their best because of the way this society raises children and stresses parents. The result is a lot of people who are completely disconnected from themselves and who are not in touch with their feelings. Now, I'm going to play another song that illustrates that. It's the saddest song I actually know. Um, and you've probably heard it before, but maybe think about it from this perspective. It is meant to be a love song, but it's actually uh, anything but a love song. Okay, well, I can't make it work and I'm not going to suffer at it, so it's, it's, it's the song Any Way You Want Me by Elvis Presley. And he sings, you know, I'll be strong as a mountain or weak as a baby. Um, any way you want me, that's how I'll be. In my hands, or in your, in your hands, my heart is clay to do with it as you will. You know, any way you want me, that's how I'll be. That's the lyrics. This is thought to be a love song. What it actually is, is the absence of love song. And if I wish I could play it for you, because his voice is so sad when he sings it. But in any case, the point is that the personality that we develop is not actually a, a reflection of our true selves. Very often, it's their defenses against the loss of love. And so it's not us. An illness comes along when we're not being ourselves. When you don't get the attention that you needed as a child, as an infant, you'll be consumed by attracting attention. And now you're going to be very attractive. Now, how many times have you passed a mirror without wondering if you're attractive enough? You're just looking for love. If you didn't get the approval that you needed as a child just for existing, just for being who you were, you will want to be winning approval all the time. You'll be a winning personality. If you weren't valued, you want to measure up. If you weren't made to feel special just because for who you were, you might be demanding. 
in which case you'll run for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Uh, uh, if you uh, if you weren't uh, esteemed for who you were, then you might want to impress people. If you weren't made to feel important for just who you were, then you go to medical school like I did, and you want to make yourself important. If you weren't liked for who you were, you're going to be very nice so that people will like you, so that you can have this simulacrum of love. If you weren't loved, you'll be very charming. And people say, what a charming guy, what a charming woman this person is. But all of this demands that you actually suppress your own feelings. Now, how does that lead to illness? It leads to illness because it's very stressful always to be playing a role. It's actually stressful. And there's always the fear behind it. It's fear-driven. And fear is a state of being in stress. Now, the stress hormones, if I were to scream at you right now and, 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 and frighten you, you would have a stress response. By the way, just to indicate how inseparable the mind is from the body, that's how simple it is. I could change your physiology in this room. I could change the physiology of 1,500 people in this room without touching them simply by uh, generating a credible threat. If I had a weapon, for example, and screamed at you, your physiology would change in a split second. That doesn't just happen in extreme circumstances. It happens every moment of our lives that our physiology responds to our emotions. Now, if I were to stress you right now to... to, to to um, induce fear in you like that, your adrenaline levels will go up and your cortisol levels will go up. Because what happened is that the fear center in the brain would communicate with the hypothalamus in the brain, which is the apex of the autonomic nervous system and also of our hormonal apparatus, and the messages through your autonomic nervous system would go through to the entire body and then hormones would be released and then your adrenal gland would respond by secreting adrenaline which gives you more energy, more strength, more speed for the flight or fight response that you have to generate and you'd have cortisol released as well which gives you more sugar so that you can be more um, energetic again in the escape or, or, or struggle uh, response to stress. So in the short term, these hormones save your life. In the long term, they kill you. Adrenaline secreted over a long period of time elevates your blood pressure, and narrows your blood vessels, makes you more prone for heart disease or strokes. We know this. Uh, cortisol in the long term depresses, um, makes you depressed, actually. It thins your bones, so you're going to get osteoporosis. It can... Um, ulcerate your intestines and can put fat on your belly in a way that promotes heart disease and also it suppresses your immune system. So people chronically stressed, we know, have diminished activity of their immune system. So for example, um, people who are bereaved and, and after a strong, close relationship, of course, depending on the level of social support they have, but the more alone they are, the more likely they're going to be, uh, have a high level of a stress response. And you can measure activity of the immune system as being diminished. Now, Britain, I understand, a couple of years ago, actually appointed a minister of loneliness. 
That's how endemic loneliness has become in our society. And people are lonely, get sick faster, and they die quicker of their diseases. After a, a, a bad divorce, it's even worse. The, 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 the suppression and, and disturbance of the immune system, according to studies. And this diminished activity of a group of cells called natural killer cells. Natural killer cells attack malignant cells and attack foreign invaders. Now George Bush, the, I'm talking about George Bush Sr., was now deceased, but he survived his wife Barbara by, I think, one or two years. The day after her funeral, he was hospitalized with a blood infection. You think that was an accident? Bereavement depresses the immune system. In Australia, there was a study. They looked at 500 women with uh, breast lumps that needed to be biopsied uh, to make sure it wasn't malignant. And um, before the results were uh, in, the women underwent a psychological, psychological questionnaire. And what they found was that if a woman was emotionally isolated, that by itself didn't increase the lump, the chance of the lump being cancerous. If a woman was highly stressed around the onset of that lump, that by itself also didn't increase the chance of, chance of that lump being cancerous. But if a woman was emotionally isolated and stressed, the chance of the lump being cancerous was nine times as great as the average. And the researchers, being medical scientists who think from up here, they couldn't figure this one out because they said, "How does nine plus how does zero plus zero add up to nine? If the zero effect here, zero effect there, what's happening?" Well, of course, it's obvious. What's happening is, for example, in the front row, person at the very aisle seat here, if you're very stressed, then you have these high levels of stress hormones which are affecting your immune system, and if you're all alone with it for months. You might be in trouble, but if there's a friend of yours sitting next to you and says, Hey, friend, hey, sweetheart, um, hey, buddy, you seem upset, do you want to talk about it? What happens to your stress hormones? Your nervous system relaxes, your heart rate decreases, your intestinal muscles uh, in, the, in the gut relax, and, you, and, 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 and your stress hormone levels go way down. We're biopsychosocial creatures. And so these patterns of, of, of emotional self-suppression, um, they promote illness in part because they leave us completely alone. Because whether we're alone or not does not depend on how many friends we have. And I'm, again, I'm quoting Bessel van der Kolk. He says, social support is not the same as being merely in the presence of others. The critical issue is reciprocity being truly heard and seen by the people around us, feeling that we're held in someone else's heart and mind. But if I'm suppressing who I am, nobody's ever going to see me. And I might be very nice, and there might be a thousand people who love me, but none of them know me, and I'm totally isolated, really at heart. And that's what's going on. Let me talk to you briefly about stress, and I'll have to bring this to a close fairly soon. There's so much more I would wish to tell you. Stress is... Um, by the way, there's another mechanism by which stress and early childhood negative experiences lead to disease, which is simply through inflammation. So we know, for example, that the more trauma a child experiences, the greater the level of inflammatory particles in their bloodstream as adults. 
you can measure inflammatory proteins in the bloodstream and the more stress you had as a kid, the higher they're going to be. And the more stress you have, there's another structure. I mean, the information is just coming in all the time. It's hard to even keep up with it. There's a structure called telomeres. Telomeres are structures at the end of your chromosomes, like the shoelace has a glue at the end to keep the strands together. Telomeres keep the chromosome together. Telomeres shorten with stress. They also shorten with age. So children who are traumatized, for example, have shorter telomeres, which means that they're chronologically older than their peers. And so there's many mechanisms by which stress uh, affects the body that way. But let me talk to you about stress for a moment. So stress has three components, and this is maybe the takeaway. There's the external event called the stressor. So depending on where you stand on Brexit, uh, the, uh, the defeat of the referendum would have stressed you, or perhaps the success of the re referendum is what stressed you. So there's no universal stressor. It depends on the individual of how they perceive and experience a particular event. So the first component of the stress reaction is the event. Okay? The third and final component of the stress reaction is the physiological stress response with the adrenaline and the cortisol and the nervous system and the gut and the heart and really the whole body. But in between the external event and the um, uh, physiological reaction is what we can call the processing apparatus. And the processing apparatus is you and I with our particular interpretations, our beliefs, usually unconscious interpretations, unconscious beliefs, internal emotional dynamics that we have no control over. That's the pro until we become conscious of them. So the, really the whole point of this talk is to become conscious of what's happening inside us. Now, um, I can give you a personal example. I believe I have my wife's permission to tell this story. Uh, I'm going to tell you something incredible. Uh, going back, say, 20 years ago, my wife's name is Ray, and let's say I would ask her to sleep with me one night. And she'd say no. And I know that for many of you this is totally unbelievable, but actually... <laughs> It did happen occasionally. And uh, the, the question is, now how does a man in his 50s, a successful physician, national columnist for a, for a prestigious newspaper, head of the palliative care unit at Vancouver Hospital, how does this guy respond when his wife of, uh, at that time, 30 years, says, no, not tonight? Well, in my case, I would curl into a fetal ball, wish that I was dead, and next morning I couldn't even look her in the eye. And what's that all about? Well, of course, you'd say it's about abandonment and rejection. But I was being abandoned or rejected. She just said, not tonight, for any number of reasons. What it's really about is that when I was one year old, and some of you know my life history may know this, I was given to a total stranger by my, by my mother, and I didn't see her for five or six weeks. And this was to save my life in wartime Hungary, in January of 19, in December of 1944, I was just under a year old. John Bowlby, the great British psychiatrist and, and researcher of attachment, talked about the infant's or the young child's response when the mother doesn't show up. This is, these studies were done here in Britain. The first response of the infant or the child, actually the young child, 
is anxiety when the mother doesn't come come back. The second response is depression. It kind of gives up. Life is not worth living without the mom. And then the kid starts acting normally. He'll eat again. He'll interact and play again. And when the mother does come back, this is this has happened when kids were hospitalized and the mothers were told not to visit because it's too upsetting for the kid to see the mother come and go, which is wrong, but this is how they did it. The child is physiologically stressed. Her heart rate goes up, but she won't even look at the mother. And Boldy calls this defensive detachment. It's a self-protection. The message is, I was so hurt when you abandoned me that I will not make myself vulnerable again to that same degree of pain. And these reactions get programmed into our brains so much so that five decades later, my wife, who I know loves me very much, has been through all kinds of stuff with me, says, no one night, and I go into the physiological mental response of the infant, and I won't even look at her. Until I become conscious that this is what's happening. When I become conscious, I can say to myself, well, oh, okay. I'm just telling a story to myself. The story of rejection and abandonment is just a story. And even if I was being rejected and abandoned, I'm not a helpless infant anymore. But you see, we all tell ourselves, all tell ourselves, all tell ourselves these stories. And these stories often run our lives. And to the extent that they're unconscious, um, and to the extent that we keep suppressing ourselves for the sake of attachment, for the sake of being accepted and loved and respected and, and, and accepted by others, and we're disconnected from our true selves, to that extent we're stressing ourselves, and to that degree we're actually making ourselves sick. And from that point of view, illness comes along to teach you something. Now, I'm not inviting you to get sick to, to learn this lesson. Nobody wishes that on anybody else whatsoever. What I am saying is that when illness does come along, and then there's many, many people now, and for my next book, I've talked to a lot of these people, who when they did get sick, rather than just simply see it as a calamity to battle against, they also saw it as an opportunity to learn. And what people keep learning over and over again is how they had not been themselves. Illness came along to bring them back to themselves. That's what they keep learning. So, again, I'm not suggesting that anybody should reject Western medicine, although sometimes you may want to, depending on the circumstances. But the point is that nobody should be a passive recipient of anybody else's care. We need to regain that sense of agency. Is that sense of agency of, of, of actually making the decisions and actually looking at our lives and our patterns and our dynamics and really being courageous about that and being open about it and being supremely curious and not judging ourselves. Oh God, I, I failed. I, I was too nice. I pushed myself down. No. But ask yourself, okay, why was I doing that? And do I really need to do that? Am I still really that infant, a young child, who needs to choose attachment over authenticity? And yes, I may lose some friends who are used to me being 
this particular way and that's what they signed up for but my true friends will celebrate me for finally being myself the um, Canadian stress researcher Hans Selye himself from Hungary like myself um, and he coined the word stress the way we use it today he said that in the modern world stresses are mostly emotional he said and the biggest stress of all is trying somebody trying to be something other than who you are so if there's a takeaway lesson here it's get to know who you are and be who you are thank you thank you thank you so um my next book, which will be published here in Britain uh, in two years, uh, will be called The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture, which kind of speaks for itself. We do have, I would say, ten minutes for questions. Um, so um, I think there are mics. Is that how it's going to work? People will raise their hands and the mics will come to them. Yeah, there's a mic right there. If you have a question, feel free to ask. And I do ask you to ask questions rather than make grand statements. Leave that to me. Hi. Hi, where are you, sorry? Just here, just here. In front of you. In front of me? In front of you at the back. Okay, at the back, okay, yeah. Um, Hi. Hi, thank you for your talk, it was great. Um, I just, I was wondering really, because you were talking about obviously people who have been stressed out, um, their telomeres might have reduced and they might have inflammation in the future and so on. Is that something that you think can be reversed, or once the damage is done, that's it? No. Um, once the damage is done, it's not it. And I don't talk in terms of damage. Um, the, the true self, the authentic self, is never lost. In fact, there's a very interesting word that we use when it comes to illness or addiction. What's the word that we use when people get better? They recover. What does it mean to recover? It means to find something. Well, if you find it, it means it could never have been lost in the first place. So I think that healing is always, well, I don't say always. I mean, at a certain point, people are diagnosed at terminal stages where nothing they're going to do is going to relieve them of the burden of illness. But often, 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 becoming conscious, becoming having some agency in your life can make a huge difference. If we only supported people in doing so. Now, let me go back to this question of women and multiple sclerosis, which I may have left, I just recall, as an open-ended issue in your mind. Um, why do I think this gender ratio has burgeoned that, that way? Because women have always played the role of being the emotional stress absorber, absorbers of their environment. So they tend to take on the stresses of their spouses and their families. They still play that role, for the most part. But on top of that, since the 30s and the 40s, they've also taken an economic role. But they have not given up the other role. It's not that they haven't given it up. Society hasn't relieved them of it. The men haven't stepped up, for the most part, to, to, to share that emotional burden. So women are still carrying that. But now they got the economic role as well. And they're doing so in the context of less social support because there's all kinds of reasons why they're in this neoliberal um, 
economy and, and this stressed culture, people are more and more isolated. So you've got more stress, more isolation. Of course you're going to have more autoimmune disease. And so about 75-80% of autoimmune disease actually happens to women. And I believe all that can be reversed if we become conscious. Okay, next question. Yes? Thank you. What are practical things that we can do to become more conscious and regain our authentic selves? Well, um, a good therapist, if you can find one. Not that easy, necessarily. Um, practices that make you more aware, so you really pay attention to yourself, so mindfulness practices. Practices that put you in touch with the body. <clears throat> Certain kinds of yoga. Now, I, don't, I don't mean Bikram yoga, where you go to sweat and get into great shape. And I'm not, nothing against that, but that's not going to help with this stuff. So anything that makes you more conscious of your body and of your emotions. Those are the practices. I'm just following the mics around. Hello, over here on your right. On my right, okay. Yeah, in green. I'll stand up. Okay, yeah, <laughs> hi. hi. Yeah, thank um, you. Just about the repressing anger. How, can you give us tips about how to express anger in a healthy way? Right. That will not cost you your job or your relationships. <laughs> um, thinking well, about I mean, people maybe stuck in a job where there is a lot of anger built up on an everyday basis and you may not be able to express it. Yeah, I got it. So, just, stand, just keep standing for a minute, okay? Let me just do an exercise with you, okay? Let me, let's just demonstrate what, hanger, ang, what healthy anger is all about. If, if, you, if you're willing to volunteer, is that okay? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Okay, thank you. What's your name? Emily. Emily, thank yeah. you. So, Emily, if, if, if I, um, for the remainder of the evening, for this question period, I stood right here, is that okay with you? That's fine. That's fine. So the distance is okay. Now, what if yeah. I were to come and... Uh, Stand right here. Is that distance still okay with you? That's okay. <laughs> okay. Now, what if I moved right in so I'm just right in your face? Will um, that still be okay? It's a bit weird, but... It's a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> a bit weird. Okay. And what if I stood on your feet now? Would that I be okay? Like that. Okay. So what would you do about that? Um, I'll ask you to step off my feet. But by the way, the one rule in this experiment is that you can't move. You have to stand in your spot. That's your life. You okay. can't leave it, okay? So you have to stand your... You have to be on your ground. That's your life. You can't leave it. But you can do whatever else you need to do. So I'm, I'm moving into your space. What are you going to do? Well, I might push you back eventually. You might push me back eventually. Thank you very much. And when you were pushing, what emotion do you think you'd be generating? For myself? If you were pushing me, um, what... Sorry? Well, you mean anger? Or yes, exactly. So that's what healthy anger is. It's a boundary defense. That's all it is. It says, you're in my space, get out. Okay? There's such a thing as unhealthy anger. The difference between unhealthy anger and healthy anger is that healthy anger is about the present moment. I'm in my space right now, and you, you don't even have to call it anger, just call it healthy aggression. You're in my space, get out. It's when you don't do that, that the unhealthy anger builds up. Until you either totally suppress it, in which case you could get sick, or you explode, in which case you're going to get fired, okay? But if you actually, when the boundary invasion happens, you stood your ground, you said, no, I'm sorry, this is not, no, then that's how you deal with it. That's what healthy aggression actually is, 
Okay, do you see the difference? Now, by the way, the role of anger then, healthy anger... I'm okay. Um, um, I can just see the headlines. Freak accident kills... Uh, um, the role of healthy anger is to maintain your boundaries, to keep in, to, 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 to keep out what's unhealthy and unwanted and, and unwelcome. The role of emotions in general is to keep out what's unhealthy and unwelcome and to let in what is desirable and, and, and welcome. So somebody else in another circumstance, you might want them to be very close with you. So emotions keep out what's unwanted and toxic, allow in what's healthy. What is the role of the immune system? It's the same thing. Now we know that the immune system and the hormonal apparatus and the emotional apparatus and the nervous system are not separate systems. If it is a new science that studies the unity, when I say new, I mean maybe 50 years old, and it's, and it's called psychoneuroimmunology. So the, the study of psychoneuroimmunology has, has delineated the actual physiological connections between the nervous system and the gut and the immune system and the hormonal apparatus, um, cardiovascular system, which simply means that when we suppress any part of it, including the psychic apparatus, we're actually affecting the other parts as well. And that's why it's so important to know the distinction between healthy anger and unhealthy anger. Because when you suppress the unhealthy, when you suppress the healthy anger, you're actually affecting every aspect of your physiology. Okay, I'll take one more question. I mean, I wish I could take many more, but we just don't have time. Uh, uh, hello, <laughs> in the like at the right side. Right, oh, your left side, sorry. My left side, okay. <laughs> okay, can you stand up? I am standing up. Oh, you're standing, okay, yeah. Good. <laughs> All right. Please, um, go, please go ahead. Thank you. S similar question, really, but around, um, you, you're talking about these deep, um, very visceral responses, like from age one type events. Yeah. Isn't, it, it feels, isn't there a chance of sort of, if you let that happen in an environment that can't support it, that's a dangerous thing to, to, to risk doing, but you, you don't know how to sort of train the environment without risking so, that at some so, point. So, okay, well look, um, I'm not talking about necessarily expressing your emotions every time. For example, if you're never having a debate and you strongly disagree with me, but I was standing there with a gun in my hand, you may not wish to express how angry you are at, really at that moment. You know? Yeah. I'm not talking about necessarily, the expression is, is discretionary. It's the experience of it, whether you repress it automatically and compulsively, and whether you keep going back into situations where you get triggered in significant ways and you have no opportunity to deal with it. That's the real issue. So in a given circumstance, you may or may not choose, but I'm talking about choice. And the question is, how much choice do you really have when you're doing this automatically and compulsively because you're programmed to do that by childhood? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be nice to people. I'm not saying we shouldn't be compassionate and helpful. I mean, I actually think that human nature is by, is by its very um, 
nature uh, social and, 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 and compassionate rather than individualistic and aggressive and, and, and selfish. What I'm talking about is how conscious are we? In other words, if, I've, if I can choose to help others, um, I may do so a lot of the time. But if I'm compulsively driven to help others because I want them to love me, that's what the problem is. So I'm not necessarily talking about how we express things. I'm talking about how we experience things internally and how much choice we actually have over our experience. That's what I'm discussing here. Um, if you all bear with me, I'll take one more question and that'll be it. Yeah? Wherever the mic is. And gosh, you know, I, mean, I just wish I could spend a day because, I mean, this is really deep stuff and... and there's so much more to say about it. I, I hope you, could, I hope you can um, accept that I've given you kind of the surface of something. Yes, please go ahead. Hi, Gabor. Oh, hi, Laura. Um, I wanted to ask if you can talk a little bit about postpartum depression. Depression? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, although it's not quite the subject tonight, but that's fine. Uh, depression is something I've certainly dealt with in my life. And what I'm really saying to you, and this is, I'm not going to prove this right now, is that virtually everything that happens to us later on in life begins as a coping mechanism in childhood. So, you know, I've talked about these coping mechanisms to maintain our attachment relationships, and so as a result, we suppress ourselves. Now, if you look at the word depression itself, what does it actually mean to depress something? It means to push it down. In depression, something is pushed down. What is usually pushed on in depression? It's anger. And the problem is, when we're pushed on one of our emotions, it's hard to experience the others. And now there's this joyless, negative, hopeless experience of depression. It does begin as a coping mechanism in childhood when the environment could not tolerate your emotions, so you learn to push them down. And then later on, you'll be diagnosed with depression. Now, you might ask, am I saying depression is not physiological? Sure it is. But the part of this process is that these early experiences don't only affect our emotions, they also affect our brain physiology. So childhood stresses actually will have an impact on how much serotonin is going to be available in my brain. Serotonin being one of the mood chemicals. So when you take fluoxetine or Prozac, you're elevating your serotonin levels. Now, I, I am by personality kind of a depressive, so that's my baseline. Um, you might think this jolly fellow, how could he be depressed? But, you know, <laughs> that's kind of my baseline. That's my default setting. Less and less as I learn to deal with it. And I'm, but I know that I'm challenged in terms of serotonin. But that does go back to uh, early childhood, because early childhood actually programs the brain uh, physiologically. And as um, one becomes more self-aware and self-compassionate, you can reverse that. So yes, the, uh, depression also begins as a child coping mechanism, and the, the issue in depression, like in illness in general, is to become ourselves. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention.